You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Felicia Lacay stars as Laverne Baker in Rock and Roll Man. The hit musical is now playing at New World Stages. Felicia was nominated for Tony and Grammy Awards, playing Diana Ross in Motown, the musical. Some of Felicia's other Broadway and off-Broadway credits include Three Penny Opera, One Ten in the Shade, Ragtime, Book of Mormon, Superhero, and Almost Heaven, the John Denver musical. On TV, she's been seen in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, FBI Most Wanted, The Blacklist, and Blue Bloods. On March 15th, Felicia will be making her Carnegie Hall debut in the show Hitsville, celebrating Motown with the New York Pops. Welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. I sometimes forget what I've done, but thank you for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what an epic, epic <laughs> career. <laughs> and, and it's only, I mean, <laughs> and you're still very young. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think, I mean, this business may say otherwise, but I'd like to think so. <laughs> so you're young. What is the joy for you of being a rock and roll man? Well, the joy for me for being a rock and roll man is it's going to all end just for performing period. It's going to always go back to the people. Yeah. I think the work that we do as artists is very purposeful. You know, I get to yeah. use my voice as an instrument of love and healing. And every night that I get to go on stage in order of service to the people is a moment where we get to be reminded of togetherness, of how we connect with each other, of how we can take two hours and 30 minutes and just forget about all of our troubles and just laugh and just be reminded of why we are human, but why we celebrate each other in the fashion of love and, and, and joy and, and honor and music. Oh, that's so wonderful. What a gift to yes, the audience. Can, and for people who might not know Rock and Roll Man, which tells this 
wonderful story and an incredible, inspiring story of Alan Freed and then Laverne Baker and how all these artists, you know, fit into uh, that world, you know, of the 50s and 60s, right? I'll Mm -hmm. let you tell it. Yeah, so Rock and Roll Man is essentially the story of sort of Alan Freed, who was this local DJ out of Ohio, who got the opportunity to play black music on the radio. And the way our story takes place is that we're 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 gathering on the day of of, of Alan Freed's last uh, last day, and he sort of has this this fever dream, this sort of nightmare where he's now represented by Little Richard as yes. his attorney, <laughs> and the opposing the opposing attorney mm-hmm. is J. Edgar Hoover. And so in the midst of this trial to which he has, um, he now goes into this sort of world to which we now be, uh, we're now becoming introduced to all of these characters in his life. That goes from myself as Laverne Baker, Chuck Berry, the wonderful quote, Quartet, the course co- coasters, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bo Diddley, along with some personal people in his life, like his wife and his daughter. And so we sort of get to relive this non-fictional story or fictional story in sort of with a historical context because Alan Freed was a local DJ. He was one of the first to play black music on the radio. Um, He was sort of one of the first to bring this music to the masses, to integrated audiences. And he was a rule breaker. Uh, And so we sort of get to see this story uh, evolve over the the, uh, amount of two hours and 15 minutes. And your character... Laverne Baker, oh goodness. I mean, she is incredibly talented, sings these beautiful songs that we all know, like Tweedly Dee and Jim Dandy. And she, for people who like, what would you like people to know about Laverne Baker? Because she was, I mean, she was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the second woman. And yeah, she was be- she was one of the second solo women. I think Aretha Franklin was the first, which was okay. after the, the second year that uh, the Rock and Roll Fame uh, was started. But she was inducted the same year that uh, Ike and Tina Turner were inducted. So she, I would say she would be the solo, the first solo artist who was alive, or the second mm-hmm. solo artist who was alive to be inducted as far as females. But yeah, she was one of his early inductees. But what I would love for people to, to remember about Laverne Baker, not only is she this dynamic performer with loads of personality, but she used humor to allow herself to navigate through di- many different audiences. A lot of times mm-hmm. if you go on YouTube and see her perform, she's, in, she's performing in front of white audiences and they love her and what they love about her is that she was able to not just um, make them smile but make them feel really comfortable in their own skin but comfortable being around her but comfortable listening to the music but more than anything Laverne Baker was resilient you know she died at a very young age and I would say a young age of 67 after having both of her legs amputated. And she would say, listen, I I don't have my legs, but I still have my voice. I can still get out there and sing. And for her, it was a ministry. Like she was not going to allow any person, anything, any illness to stop her from using her voice as a gift to the world. And she she died doing so. And what's extraordinary is that I've read that, what was it she sang she was such a trailblazer. I mean, she sang Elvis. She sang songs that other people went on to sing. Absolutely. Like I mean, yeah, and, yeah, like, you know, 
you know, when Elvis re- records her song, you know, you obviously have done something right <laughs> because, you know, she, she recorded, um, you know, like in, in like the, in the world of Big Mama Thornton with Hound Dog, Elvis did that, you know, Laverne yeah. Baker, he, he did uh CC Ryder, you know? And so like, yeah, like she, she had a lot of these prolific songs, but she had this amazing sound that came out of this, yes. this little voice that it was full of soul, full of rhythm and blues, full of a rock, full of, full of gusto, full of fire that she was able to do it. She was able to sing anything, you know, and that's one of the things that I loved about her. Is there something you, you wish you could ask or tell her in a parallel universe, you know, if you could talk to her? Absolutely. I mean, a parallel universe, two simple words. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you for just never giving up. Thank you for your grace of how you navigated audiences, but also how you stood for your people, Black people, people who loved music. Uh, for women, she was uh, full of power. She was full of might and dignity and grace and joy. And I would just simply just honor her by just, by just letting her know that I'm simply grateful to just be able to step into her shoes, even for two hours and 30 minutes, eight shows a week. <laughs> And you do so, so exquisitely. And I think about how courageous and fearless she was. And that's talked about in the show, you know, where, mm-hmm. like you said, she's going in front of white audiences, sometimes mm-hmm. hostile audiences. And yet Absolutely. she did it. She didn't back away. She didn't back away, nor did she bat an eye. You know, I think I think for her, she's like, once I put on this dress, I'm going on stage. So, like, you're not going to get me to this theater with my lashes and my hair and my dress on and not let me perform. And then all of those people are out there waiting for us. You know, she just did not. She was fearless. She did not allow anything to stop her. And so we see that resilience and that 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 grit about her on stage. And it's just it's just a wonderful thing to tap into. Talk about fearless. I think about your journey. Yeah. And um, from what I've been researching and what you've gone through, I want to start, though, with your lightning strikes moment when you mm-hmm. knew you had to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Right? You were raised in Memphis, right? Yep. Tennessee. I was, I was raised in Memphis, yeah. And see in church, but I'll let you tell it. Yeah. So for me, you know, my mother and my grandmother always talked about like how I did not speak as a child. Like I was very, very quiet. And my grandmother was a little concerned about why I wasn't saying anything. But I I like to think that I was just a really in tune listener and really being in tune with connecting with the people and sort of finding my way towards helping people heal. But the moment Mm -hmm. I went to church and heard members of the choir sing, that was going to be the way that I was going to communicate with the audiences that were around me. So I probably became more fluent in song than I did in speech first. I mean, obviously, (laughs) gradually, obviously, when I went to kindergarten and stuff, I learned to, to speak. But I knew for me in the sixth grade, like singing was going to be my thing. Like, I would go to church, I would see how these women and these men would transcend the audience, but also like put them in sort of a state of mind that, that that took away everything. And people really reacted to it and it made them feel something. They were able to connect with the parishioners, with the ministers, 
with the other members of the choir. And I knew if I was able to just really honestly take away the pain, take away the fear, take away um, the sorrow, even if it was just for like three minutes, I was like, I'm going to be doing that. And then as I got older, I realized I could get paid for it. So then there was then there was a whole different story. But that was sort of my lightning strike moment for me. It really was in the church. And it really comes back to like allowing music to be a vehicle for healing mm-hmm. and allowing, you know, the voice to really sort of serve in that capacity. That's what it was for me. Do you remember some of those early songs you say? And were you part of a choir? Were you doing solos? Well, How did yeah, that like, you know, in the church, like you had to, you couldn't be in the adult choir. So there was like the Sunshine Band. And and those who will listen of the Black church will probably know what I'm talking about. So that was just for like teeny bots like myself, five, six, seven, eight years old. And I don't think I got to really be integrated into like the adult choir until like, Maybe the teens, early teens, early adolescents, where we would get to join in with the adult choir. But, you know, like this little light of mine will always be a number one hits for any five or six year old in a black church. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. I think this is another one. Um, God, I'm trying to think. And then, you know, Easter Sunday was also a moment to perform as well. And so on Easter Sunday, not only did we get to sing, but we got to say our Easter speech. And I think my first one was like, Jesus wept. And that was it. (laughs) And so like, you you see like this four-year-old, these like tiny bot children get up and speak in front of the choir and say, Jesus wept. And everyone would just cheer and like, (laughs) yay. And so, you know, I responded to like, the cheering of it all. And so it really just made me just really think like, wow, it's amazing what we could do as human beings just to lift joy and bring happiness to people. And and so that was sort of the moment for me uh, in church. So how did you go from singing in church to, do I have this right, working professionally like at Dollywood, right? Mm -hmm. You were a performer there. Yeah. So for me, it just went from one, one vehicle to the next. So whether what, when I wasn't singing in church, my grandfather, who's a barber, who's a license, who still is a barber to this day at 91 years old, he would have hair shows. I would ask if I could perform at the hair shows. Anytime anybody had a funeral, I was asked to sing. Any wedding that I could perform at, I was asked to perform. Anywhere, anywhere, anywhere possible. And also at the local theme park when I was a teenager in Memphis, it's it's no longer in existence, but it was called Liberty Land. I, I actually, I hope I don't go to jail for this today, but I actually changed my birth certificate so that I can get a job to help out my family when I was 14 years old to work in their food and beverage department. Then I heard about the fact that they were hiring singers for their for their theater. They're like their little theaters within the, the theme park. And I auditioned and I got it. And they told me, okay, we know you changed your age, but we still love you. We want you to perform. And so I started performing at the theme park at 15 years old, I think 15 and 16 years old. I would do it every summer in high school. I came back to do it my second year or first year of college. And I was also performing as like a mascot in college. And when I couldn't do that anymore, that's when I decided that, oh, here's Dollywood, like 45 minutes from my university. 
let me go and audition there. And so I was there my last two years of being in, in, in college and I absolutely loved it. What did you do there? What kinds of shows? <laughs> Get this. What kind of shows? 50s and 60s shows. <laughs> so a lot of the music that I performed there, honestly, you know, even at, at the local mm-hmm. theme park in high school, I was singing. I played Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. Um, yeah. So like there was a moment where I would go off and sing, I'm going to make you love me. And then I'd leave the stage and come back and sing, um, stop the love you say as little Michael Jackson. And then at Dollywood, I too sing stop in the name of love. I was, if not the only black girl in the show Mm -hmm. at the time. So a lot of that music sort of was, you know, graced upon me. And I got to do, you know, Diana Ross music. I, one year I got to perform with Dolly's brother, Randall, uh, Randall who's now deceased, um, where they featured a lot of the singers at Dollywood. And I got to do some Cassie, uh, God, I can't think of Cassie's last name, but she died in her 30s. I got to do Wade in the Water and different soulful music like that. Um, I got to do the songs like Johnny Angel, Where the Boys Are, like all of that classic crooner, soulful music of that time. And then in the holidays, we would do, you know, 50s and 60s holiday music. Um, But it was a wonderful production. There are still wonderful productions going on to this day. But it was really a a great vehicle and a great avenue for me to showcase my talent. And what preparation. Absolutely. (laughs) And so here you are. Then you ultimately graduate with a degree in psychology Mm-hmm. and um, Child and Family Studies from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you get to New York? Well, I I remember seeing an ad, People when people used to look at the papers, I remember seeing an ad in the paper about the USO of Metropolitan New York, and they were looking for singers, and I just remember thinking, okay, I, you know, I, I knew I was going to New York, I just didn't know how I was going to get there. And I went to audition. They were looking for, I guess, first, second, and third runner-up, Miss USO, and two other women. And I didn't get the place of Miss USO, but I did. I was asked to be in the trio. And so I, I remember leaving school, leaving my job at the end of the year at, at Dollywood, and getting the opportunity to perform at the USO. But I did not have any place to stay. I was. I didn't have money. <laughs> I think I might've had the $200 from my last unemployment check and then no place to stay, no real plan. And I just remember one of the women who was also cast with me in the USO was a theater girl. And uh, she said, Hey, listen, I have a one bedroom apartment. You're free to sleep on my couch. Cause we're going to be doing this thing together anyway. And so that's really where I spent my first year in, in New York city in Queens sleeping on her couch, performing with the USO. And what was one of the first most memorable jobs you had in theater? With the USO. I mean, after the USO. After USO. I must must add that I I was a USO member right after 9-11. So that's been some of the most rewarding work that I've ever done. But, um, But the only reason why I bounced into theater, honestly, because I, I wanted to be a professional recording artist like Whitney Houston. But the only reason why I bounced into theater is because once again, one of those women in the USO, they were both into theater. They both graduated with theater degrees. And she said to me, I can't go to my audition. 
she used the term at the time, they're looking for ethnic women, you know, women of color, basically. And uh, so why don't you go? And I was like, okay. So I went, the audition was for Charles Randolph Wright and Nona Gay for her show Skin Diver. And, you know, he was like, well, you're not really right for what we're looking for, but I'm going to send your information on to this other person. And that other person was Richard Maltby. I did not know who he was. I did not know anything. I just (laughs) remember having a conversation with him and saying, so what is it that you do and what do you want with me? And, you know, I got this really important gig with the USO. So I really don't know if I have time for you and your (laughs) thing. But, you know, I'm here doing big things with the USO. So he was very gracious and sort of laughed at me, you know, in my, I didn't know a lot. And so he just was like, oh, I sort of created this show and that show and, you know, Miss Saigon and all these theater things. And I was like, okay, you know, whatever. (laughs) And then I ended up doing a workshop of his reading called The 60s Project. Another, again, another world of the 60s. It was called The 60s Project, and uh, T. Oliver Reed was in it, Anika Nani Rose, Cass mm-hmm. Morgan, a young Alice Lakemore was uh, the, like the musical director. Uh-huh. Um, we had a lot of people from Thoroughly Modern Millie in it at the time. And I just remember being in that room and being like a sponge and just soaking up everything that I needed to know about theater. Um, and that was sort of my sort of big introduction to the land of you know, musical theater. Oh, gosh, what a what an introduction with yeah. all those incredible talents. So, mm-hmm. how did you get? What was one of the the first Broadway shows you did? You know, the first Broadway show I did. Once again, you know, it's a lightning striking continuously, and God just continually saying, "I'm going to bless you." Um, I was doing Randall Myler's Almost Heaven, uh, the John Denver musical. I was in the show with Jim Newman, uh, Lee Morgan, Jennifer, I can't remember, Jennifer Alston, I think, and the great Terry Burrell. And the the great Terry Burrell, being the wonderful woman that she is, said to me, do you have an agent? And I was like, no, not really. She was like, like, just just basically stick with me, kid. And I'm just going to take care of you. Well, she had her agent come see me, come to the show, because the agent had two other clients in the show. And she said, I want you to meet with my agents. And that was back in 2006. I met with her agents, probably like on a Wednesday. I had an audition for a Broadway show on a Thursday. I think I was offered the show that day. So it was just that quick. <laughs> and the show was Three Penny Opera. Yes. I remember them calling my, uh, my agents and saying, well, she's, she can do so many things, play so many characters, because she's, you know, she's sort of wafty, you know, thin girl. And she could probably pay a guy or a girl. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was offered the show. I was offered the role as the swing for Three Penny Opera. And that was my first Broadway show experience. It, was, it wasn't like 8 million auditions, 12 million dance calls. It was like, she's got a voice. She's sort of interesting. She's unique. She can you know act. She can do anything. She's a chameleon. Let's put her in this show. <laughs> Do you remember how you felt that, that first night that you went on? Oh, my God. Who, I can't even remember which character it was. I didn't need to go on to feel a spark. I was in the show with Cindy mm-hmm. Lauper, with Alan Cumming, with Jim Dale, with Nellie McKay. And just watching them 
perform gave me enough fire to be like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be right now in my life. And being, I've always been used to being on the stage. So, you know, even swinging and just watching it was a a visceral experience for me. Mm -hmm. But I just, I just knew from the first moment that I got to connect with the audience that like, wow, this is something magical. That's so extraordinary. And then I think about how you went on to do One Tail in the Shade with Mm -hmm. Audra McDonald, right? Mm -hmm. And Ragtime, Book of Mormon, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you get the mother load role <laughs> of Diana Ross and Motown. Right? Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that, how that came into your life? And I know you workshopped it. Right? Yeah. Years we, you were in it early on. Oh, yeah. Very, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, that process, the show didn't come to Broadway until 2013, but the workshop of that process started for me and my co-star, Brandon Victor Disson, back in 2011. And so I remember when that audition came about, I had heard through the grapevine that they were going to be doing a show about Motown and they were looking for a Diana Ross. And I remember being on the corner of, I think it was like 58th and 8th Avenue and calling my agents and was like, I need to be auditioning for this show and I need to be auditioning for Diana. So do what you got to do. And I remember my first audition, ironically enough, it was with Charles Randolph Wright, the first ever theater audition I had 10 years previously. And I remember him saying to me, he kept saying, are you doing something with your voice? Because you sound just like her. And I was like, this woman is just in me. You know, she's been in me for so many years. And I remember showing up in my 50s dress and my 50s hairstyle with my lashes and all there is. And I think I may have had one other audition. I don't remember there being like a number of auditions. I think there might've been one or two. And then I was offered the role. And when I was offered the role, Charles called me. He was like, okay, you're playing Diana Ross and you need to be Diana Ross. And I said, that's no problem for me. I've been collecting vintage clothes for 20 years. I I have the wardrobe. My mother's a hairstylist. I know how to style a wig. I I have the shoes and I'm very familiar with makeup. So every day during those workshops for over a few years, I would come in as a different era of Diana Ross from head to feet. So like, it was, it was very natural for me to show up like that. Like I didn't, it wasn't doing extra work. Like the clothes were already in my closet. I just absolutely loved honoring her. And how beautifully you honored her. I remember, yeah, that's what was it? Reach out and touch. And, and how you motivated the audience. Yeah. I mean, it was like a spiritual experience. Yeah. It really is. And I'm glad you I'm glad you noticed that because yeah. being one with the audience really is we're in a relationship yeah. with each other for that time frame. And so to be able to be fully present in those moments is an unbelievable experience. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so here you're with the show, you get nominated for a Tony, you get nominated for a Grammy, and then do you mind sharing what happened next? Yeah, I, I, wanna... I, I absolutely. I, um, I, after, yeah, after being nominated for a number of, of theater awards and, and the theater world award. Yes. And winning, and then, yeah. 
Exactly. And so, um, and towards the end of that year, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and needed to fully step away from the show. This was sort of like, you know, uncharted territories for me. Um, I never really knew about ovarian cancer. I just remember receiving a phone call from my doctor saying that I was diagnosed with clear cell carcinoma and not really even understanding what that was. And, you know, at the time, not many not many organizations were talking about young women with ovarian cancer, let alone black women with ovarian cancer. And so I found myself like a fish out of water trying to navigate these websites, these organizations where my face was just nowhere to be seen, let alone black faces, nowhere to be seen. I'm, you know, going on the website, seeing older women, Caucasian women and hearing their stories and seeing the, the education and everything sort of targeted to them and it really lit a fire in my belly to just say like, wow, you have an opportunity, Valicia, to educate not only women of color, but black women, but also women who are younger. Like I was in my thirties, early thirties. I never had a child before. I, you know, hadn't experienced a lot of things. And so it really just, it really encouraged me to just use my voice once again, as an instrument of love and healing and advocate for women who are like myself, who are in their early thirties, twenties, who are, who are now enduring ovarian cancer, but any cancer for that matter. Yes. You know, there was a world for us. There was, there was a place for us to, to say that we're experiencing this and, and, and how do we go about doing this? You, I saw a beautiful video you did where you spoke about your journey with ovarian cancer. Uh, it's uh, for look good, feel better. And you say something that was so profound. You said my immediate response was to go out and tell the world that little girl who did not speak when she was four or five was ready to roar. Yes. I think, you know, Amy, that how beautiful is that, that you wanted to share in, in this mm -hmm. most vulnerable moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was you know, I think God saves us for the most precious moments in life. And I think as a little girl, as I was, listen, I'm getting my master's in psychotherapy as I'm currently in the show. So I'm full circling every single moment of my life that a little girl who was born, who did not really speak, but really, clearly had her listening skills up to, up to task, now is in master. Now I'm getting my master's as a psychotherapist, specifically as marriage and family therapy, and using my voice and my listening skills <laughs> to help serve others. And so, yeah, it was certainly an opportunity for me to get out there and roar and tell people about this disease because it's not as public as breast cancer. There are not many run walks every year. They're not much, you know, people aren't wearing the teal ribbons at the basketball games, at the baseball games. They're not doing that. But here was, here I was with an opportunity to sort of break the mold of like what ovarian cancer looks like. And when you get it, they don't care if you have a Grammy nomination or Tony nomination, or you're on Broadway eight shows a week. Cancer doesn't care. Cancer comes after us all. And so here I had an opportunity to really speak about that. What got you through that time? You know, what helped you? What, what really helped me first was that I needed to surrender. You know, I think I'm a very particular person and I, you know, I'm organized, I'm scheduling, I'm all of those things, but you can't schedule life. You can't schedule cancer. 
You can't do any of those things. And I just really needed to surrender to the process of like what this healing journey was going to be like for me. And I really needed to allow others who wanted to help me also go through this process to allow that to happen. But more than anything, having the grace to, to allow myself to just speak positivity into my life, feed myself with the healing that I needed, take the time to encourage myself to say that you can do this, but also if you, if you don't feel okay today, it's okay for you to rest. Because I think as Black women, we're so used to, women period, okay, are used to multitasking. We're used to taking care of everybody else. We're mothers, we're sisters, we're grandparents, we're caretakers, we're friends. But here I was a patient. Mm -hmm. And as a patient, I needed to love on myself like I've never loved on myself before. And I just think the surrendering of it all taught me how to do that. I see. I saw that there was a a beautiful video it was your cast created for you a song that they made absolutely they were so they're they're just a bunch of we still take care of each other to this day because we've had so many people in our shows who now had mm-hmm. cancer who've either passed mm-hmm. away but they wrote a song called i am here um for me <laughs> and it is beautiful and i'm so honored by such a gift of an archival gift to me that I can always go back to, to remember, to remind me who I am and the life and the purpose that I am here for. And then you, you got back to work, right? I know you had the recovery and you played Lorraine Hansberry. Absolutely. Just, just another magnificent woman who also passed away early from cancer, from pancreatic cancer. I got to tell her story I got to be a part of building uh, the, the show about the Little Rock Nine, uh, early workshops of that. I got to do television in the process. But the most important role I, I had to play was Survivor. Uh, uh, that was the most important role I had to play. And advocate, you know, there's that's going to be the greatest work that I've ever done because I've gotten to educate people about this disease, but also share my journey letting people know that there is a way to move forward in this. And regardless of how your journey ends up, you too are a part of the process that educates others along the way. And so it's been, it's been many things, hardships, uh, headaches, trials and tribulations, but there's been plenty of love, joy, and laughter along the way. And I'm just really grateful to be here to tell the story. It's oh, so wonderful. And now when, Rock and Roll Man came into your life when you heard about it. What went into your mind? Well, you know, it's so interesting how life just continually brings the same people in my life because Randall Myler, who I did Almost Heaven with, was also the director of Rock and Roll Man. And he's done a number of beautiful shows about the music of the South and, and rhythm and blues and different things like that. And there was something about Laverne specifically that drew me to this project that said, okay, I, I, I'll go audition for this. And uh, I had an audition. I honestly, I think, I mean, like truth be told, I found out that day that like I had the job. <laughs> I think the casting director at the time told me like, it's yours. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, doing the show in the Berkshires and really honestly working with Rose Kyola. You will never find another producer as loving, as kind, 
as generous, as human, as much of a caretaker as you will like Rose Kyola. She is the reason why I like continually want to like push forward this show in a way that so many people need to see it because she is so she is such a like uh, she is such a ball of fire. She is such an advocate for the theater. She mm. is such an advocate for humans and artists that you can't help but want to get behind her. And so like I want to honor Rose in the best way I know how, which is me performing in the fashion that I do, but it gets, to, you know, I guess to also honor the audience, but she really is a fantastic producer and she loves what she does. And she's also a writer on this piece. And so, you know, I get to work for someone who I knows respects me, but also loves the artists and the people that she works with. Oh, is that wonderful? And you were extended. So if somebody were to ask, why should I see rock and roll man? What would you say? Well, because, because, everything old is new again. Right. So Mm -hmm. we're now living in a time where people are trying to find their way in life, but like certain liberties are being questioned, right? Certain, certain rules and regulations are being questioned. Certain, uh, certain rights are being taken away from us. And rock and roll man talks about a show that brings people together who were not supposed to be together. They're bringing people together in the name of love, in the name of music, and they're breaking some rules along the way. And so what they're saying is that what, what, what I really want people to know is that it doesn't take you to be big and famous and rich in order to change the world. Here was a man straight out of Ohio who came up with this, who had a lightning striking moment yes. and said, I want to do something to bring people together. And so, and it didn't cost, I mean, listen, it didn't cost him anything financially necessarily, but it cost him a lot of things throughout his life, but he had a purpose he really believed in his purpose and wanting to change the way we commune as people. Yeah. And so if you want if you want to come to a place where you, not only do you get to hear some fantastic music, some, some excellent acting, some great artists come here to be inspired, entertained, and educated. We're ready for you. Go to rock and man, the musical rock and roll, man, the musical.com get your tickets. We're here for you eight shows a week and we're ready to rock. Yes. Yes. How does singing make you feel? Can you put into words? Yes, it is. And I don't want to get emotional, but singing for me is my greatest connection to a higher power. It is, it's the greatest lovemaking. It is the greatest caretaking. It is the greatest level of nurturing. It is the greatest gift to the human soul for me. And I get to do that. I am blessed to be able to do that. Well, it is a true gift thank to you. hear you sing and watch you perform and see all your light. So thank, thank you, you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Miss Gerald. I appreciate you and your time. I appreciate you, Miss Valencia. Thank you. Thank you. happens every day when lightning strikes. It's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore. This episode was produced by Anna Strand. When lightning strikes. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.